Take out your Bibles and turn with me tonight to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, folks, having uh, begun a series last week on stewardship, I told you last week that we were going to begin tonight looking at different specific areas that we need to be responsible for in our stewardship. We're going to talk about things like time, the stewardship of our time, our work, our resources, our spiritual gift. Uh, but there is no more important stewardship than what we're going to talk about tonight, and that is the stewardship of the Word. The stewardship of the Word. I want you to find 2 Timothy chapter 1, and let's begin reading at verse 13. Paul says to Timothy there, Timothy, follow the, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I want you to highlight uh, that phrase. He goes on in verse 15 to say, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome... He searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The stewardship of the word. The most, I believe, the most important stewardship that we have. We have a great responsibility as the church. We have a stewardship that has been given to us by God. And folks, think about it. What we have been given, we are going to be held accountable for one day. Imagine possessing something that could save the world. You're going away. It's up to those under you to preserve it and propagate it. If it's not preserved but allowed to be altered, it'll be ruined. If it's not propagated, it'll die because the message has been silenced. That's essentially what God has done. We've got a great work to do as the church, a great work as Christians. And that's what Paul is getting at here to young Timothy. Now I want you to remember the thrust of the book of 2 Timothy. Paul is writing to his young apprentice. Paul knows he's about to die. This is his second imprisonment. His first imprisonment was a house arrest. And during that house arrest, he wrote many of the captivity epistles like Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. Uh, that was a very productive time spent in prison. We can be glad that God put Paul in prison because without that, we wouldn't have those prison epistles. 
Well, when you come to 2 Timothy, Paul is in a cold, dark dungeon uh, in Rome, and he's not expecting to make it out alive this time. And indeed, biblical tradition tells us that Nero had Paul's head removed. Uh, Paul was a martyr for the faith. He was the greatest missionary, the greatest theologian the church has ever had. Now he's about to pass off the scene. His concern, though, you'll notice, is not with his own future, but with the future of the church and the future of the gospel. And so he writes to Timothy to admonish Timothy to courage and fidelity with the gospel. He tells Timothy that Timothy needs to preserve the gospel and protect the gospel and propagate the gospel. I want you to see a beautiful verse in verse 12. Paul says there in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Notice what Paul's saying there. I am fully assured in whom I have believed. I know that my life is in God's hands. And I know that God is able to keep that which I have entrusted to Him. Paul's entrusted his life and his ministry to the Lord Jesus. And so he really didn't fear what Tamara held. Now he wanted, uh, he wanted Timothy to know that that is the confidence that a child of God can have. But then there's some other things that he turns to to address with Timothy. Since Paul is passing off the scene, there are some things that he wants Timothy to understand. Timothy is going to need to carry on in Paul's absence. The baton is being passed to Timothy. And he's charging Timothy to be faithful with what he receives. What has God given us? God's given us the word. We need to guard it. We need to protect it. We need to preserve it and propagate it. We need to be faithful with The Word of God. You hear people say all the time, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. That's nonsense, isn't it? That is complete nonsense. What you believe matters and why you believe matters. And so listen to what Paul is saying to Timothy. And through the Holy Spirit, down through the ages, what we are being told. Number one, preserve the gospel. Look at what he says there in verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard The good deposit entrusted to you. Now look at those words. Retain the standard of sound words. Or follow the pattern of sound words. 
we must clearly hold on to the words of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Folks, that's how important the gospel is. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1.16? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Now think about that, that verse again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is what? It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to some, a stumbling block to others, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Folks, we don't go to church on Sundays just to have another place to go on another day of the week. When we come to church, we fellowship around God's Word. God's word that His Holy Spirit has chosen to bless and to bring about the transformation of men and women and boys and girls. Right? That is the privilege that we have to come and fellowship together around the word of God. It's also a very important stewardship, is it not? It's a very important stewardship. What did Peter say in 2 Peter? Find 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21. Listen to what Peter says there. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation... For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then look over at 2 Timothy chapter 3, perhaps the most known and quoted verse on the subject of the Word of God. 2 Peter chapter 3 And verse 16, Paul says there, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture. Pasa, the Greek word from pas. Literally every part. Every word. Every word of the whole is God-breathed. It is theopneustos. It is the very breath of God. God has breathed His very character into it so that it is inherently inspired. It is the inspired word of the living God. 
Now, some despise the Bible. Some, dis- uh, some despise it. Some distort it. Who was the first at doing that? Satan. What did he do in the garden? What did he say? Hath God said? Immediately from the beginning of the Bible, Satan is trying to cast doubt and dispersion on the Word of God. He tried to destroy confidence in the Word of God. He tried to fill Eve's mind with doubt. Has God really said that? And is that really what God means? He still tries to do that today. But I want us to think back a moment. Remember that series that we did, What Every Christian Ought to Know? And in that book we looked at, that book written by Dr. Adrian Rogers. Let's think of some of the points he made in that book about the Bible. First of all, he talked about the Bible's scientific accuracy. Now folks, the Bible is not a science textbook. As Adrian Rogers said, it is not written to tell us how the heavens go, but rather to tell us how to go to heaven. The Bible is not a science textbook. But whenever the Bible makes scientific observation, it has never been proven wrong in those observations. Now this is an area where people assume the Bible is filled with errors. I guess they hear that repeated often enough and they just kind of they kind of repeat that lie that the Bible when it comes to any type of scientific data the Bible can't be trusted. The Bible is filled with errors and the Bible is filled With inconsistencies. I mean that's what people have been led to believe. Is that true though? No. Now folks we've got to agree that science itself is a discipline. It has been in the past. Continues to be in a state of flux. As we learn more and more about the world around us. The accepted science of today is not necessarily the accepted science of tomorrow. For instance, in 1861, the French Academy of Science wrote a pamphlet stating that there were 51 incontrovertible scientific facts that proved the Bible not to be true. But today there is not a reputable scientist anywhere who still believes those so-called incontrovertible facts. The point is science is changing. But the Bible has remained unchanged in its comments about the observation of the created order. Let me give you some for instances. We all know that the earth is suspended in space, right? We all agree on this today, but in ancient times that was not the case at all. The Egyptians used to believe that the earth was supported by pillars. 
The Greeks believed that the world was carried on the back of a giant whose name was Atlas. And the Hindus believed that the earth was resting on the backs of gigantic elephants. And then somebody came along. They said, but what are those elephants standing on? Well, the answer was, they're standing on the back of a huge tortoise. Then the question was, well, what's the tortoise standing on? The answer was, he's standing on the back of a huge coiled serpent. And finally the question was, well, what's the serpent resting on? The answer was, he was swimming in a huge cosmic sea. Now, so much for the science of the day. When you and I pick up the Bible, though, we don't find that kind of mythology Think of what Job said in Job 26.7. Job 26.7 says, He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Now folks, Job is perhaps the oldest literature known to man. And Job said the earth is suspended in space. How did Job know that? 2 Peter 1.21 Men of old were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen? How about the fact that the earth is round, not flat. We take that for granted, don't we? Remember the little saying in school? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. They said, Columbus, you better be careful because you might sail right off the edge of the earth. Even as late as 1492, everybody didn't know that the earth was round. Yet in 750 B.C., the prophet Isaiah said, It is He, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. Isaiah 40, 22. The Hebrew word for circle literally means a globe or sphere. How did Isaiah know that? 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever made as an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. How about another one? The stars can't be counted. An astronomer named Hipparchus, who lived 150 years before Christ, counted the stars, or so he thought, and his study yielded that there were 1,022 stars in space. That was the science of his day, according to the field of astronomy. Well, that count remained as the count for the next 250 years. And then Ptolemy came along and said, Did Hipparchus say there are 1,022 stars? How ridiculous. How ridiculous. There's not 1,022 stars. There's 1,056 stars. (laughs) About 1,300 years later, a young medical student named Galileo invented his first telescope. He turned the telescope to the heavens, found that the stars cannot be counted. 
More recently, scientists have determined that there are more suns like our sun in the known universe than there are grains of sand on all the seashores of the earth. You know what? Had astronomers turned to the Bible, they could have saved themselves a lot of headache. Because listen to Jeremiah 33, 22. He says, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. As the host of heaven of the heavens cannot be counted. It was there in God's word all along. The blood circulating through the body we take for granted today that that our blood is a red river of life. But it wasn't until 1628 that William Harvey, a medical doctor, discovered that the blood circulates throughout the body. Blood carries fuel to the cells. It carries oxygen to burn that fuel. It carries away waste. It fights disease. It maintains a constant temperature in the body. All of this is fairly recent knowledge. But in olden days, when somebody got sick, what would they say? He's got bad blood. So what would they do? They'd bleed him. Now, can you imagine taking all the blood out of somebody who's already sick? That's how the barbershop pole came to look like a candy cane. It was intended to look like a bandage. They they would take sick people over to the barber to have them bled. That's how George Washington died. He was sick. They bled him. He didn't get well. They bled him again. He still didn't get well. They bled him again. He ended up dying. Maybe that's why politicians are bleeding us today. They're trying to get revenge for George Washington. Well, today we know that you can't just keep taking blood out of somebody without also putting blood back in. Leviticus 17, 14 said this all along. It says, for as for the life of all flesh, its blood is is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, you're not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Bible told us that, right? Now folks, what's doubly amazing about that is as Moses wrote Leviticus... We need to understand Moses' background. Moses had grown up in the schools of Egypt. He was trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians. And some of their medical claims and all of what to do with blood are are absolutely comical. Just superstition. And yet Moses, raised in those schools, writes differently in Leviticus. The life is in the blood. God had to reveal that to Moses. How about another one? The answer to the black plague is found in the book of Leviticus. In Europe, during the 14th century, of course, there was the black plague. And one out of four people died from it. They didn't know what to do. The black plague was spreading like crazy. 
Then somebody put two and two together. They read Leviticus 13, 46 that said, He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He's unclean. He shall live alone. They said, you know what? We need to quarantine these people. Let them live alone. And guess what? The black plague, the spread of it, was cut off. It stopped. The Bible's scientific accuracy. Secondly, let's think about the Bible's historical accuracy. Now, just like the Bible is not primarily a science textbook, neither is it primarily a history textbook. It's his story. It's God's story. And yet in history, as in science, when the Bible has addressed a historical matter, it's shown to be accurate. In the late 1800s, the scholar uh, S.R. Driver, Dr. Driver, ridiculed the idea that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Driver said, in the time that Moses was supposed to have lived, men didn't know how to write. So if Moses lived in the time when men didn't know how to write, how in the world did Moses write the Pentateuch? And so some scoffed at the Bible, for a while at least, until in Egypt a lady was working in her garden and with her spade she came across some clay tablets. They were called the Tel El Armana tablets and were tablets used for correspondence. They were written from people in Egypt to people in Palestine centuries before Moses was even born. And so not only did they know how to write, but they also had a postal service that allowed them to send letters back and forth. In the book of Daniel, there's a story about the handwriting on the wall. Remember that? King Belshazzar saw handwriting on the wall during a feast that he made for a thousand of his servants who were his leaders. You remember what the writing said there in Daniel 5? It was a message to, to King Belshazzar. Mene, mene, tekel, huparson. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting or lacking. Your kingdom's been removed. Now you'll recall as a reward for Daniel being able to give that interpretation. What did Belshazzar do? Belshazzar elevated him to what position in the kingdom? Second in the kingdom? No. What was it? Third, third in the kingdom. Well, scholars laugh. They said, that's not so because we know that Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon. The last king was Nabonidus. And so maybe the Bible's just fabricated that. But then, lo and behold, archaeologists digging in dirt. Uncovered a cylinder and sure enough in that cylinder 
from the kingdom of the Babylonians had on the name Belshazzar. And more records that they found in their discoveries showed that historians were right in saying Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. But they were wrong when they said that Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon. Now probably confused you right. Nabonidus was the last king. But Belshazzar was not the last king. They said, they said both of them were the last king. That's what they discovered. You see, Nabonidus and Belshazzar were father and son. And they ruled together. Both of them king at the same time. Nabonidus, the dad, was a big game hunter. And he loved to be away on his safaris. And he put his son Belshazzar in charge in his absence. So now when Belshazzar makes Daniel the third in the kingdom, that makes perfect sense. Because there was Nabonidus ruling, also Belshazzar ruling. So aha, the Bible saying Daniel was made third in the kingdom Makes perfect logical sense now. And so time and again, the historical references and statements in the Bible have been vindicated. Because given enough time, discoveries in archaeology, what, what they uncover with their shovels, and piecing things together... They make discoveries that vindicate what the Bible has said all along. I tell you what, folks, archaeology has been a tremendous benefit in verifying the Bible's historicity. By 1958, over 25,000 sites from the biblical world have, have been confirmed by some archaeological discoveries today. The 17 volume archaeology the Bible and Christ by Dr. Clifford Wilson former director of the Australian Institute of Archaeology in Melbourne brings together more than 5,000 facts relating archaeology to the Bible. He closes volume 17 by saying and I quote the Bible stands investigation in ways that are unique in all literature. It's superiority to being able to stand up to attack. It's capacity to withstand criticism. It's amazing facility to be proved right after all are all staggering by any standards of scholarship. Seemingly assured results disproving the Bible have a habit of backfiring over and over again, the Bible has been vindicated. This is true from Genesis to Revelation. End of quote. Probably the three greatest American archaeologists of the 20th century. W.F. Albright, Nelson Gluck, and George Ernest Wright. Each of these men had their skeptical liberal training altered by their archaeology uh, work bolstering their confidence in the end in the biblical text. 
Albright said of the Bible that, and I quote here again, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details. This was a guy that started out as a skeptic. Gluck came to trust what he termed, and I quote, the remarkable phenomenon of historical memory in the Bible. He went on to say it may be clearly stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Well, let's think thirdly about the Bible's unity. How many books do we have that make up the Bible? 66. How many Old Testament books? 39. How many New Testament books? 27. It's a compilation of books written by at least 40 different authors, perhaps more. These people lived in a period of time that would span 1,600 years. They lived in about 13 different countries and on three different continents. Some were shepherds, some were kings, some were soldiers, others were princes. Some were fishermen, some scholars, some historians, some professionals, and some just common everyday laborers. Bible's written in different styles and in three different languages. Two for the most part, Hebrew and Greek, but in the Old Testament, a uh, little bit of Aramaic as well. The writers wrote independently of one another. But when you bring it all together, it, it forms one book that tells one beautiful story of redemption from beginning to end. And everything fits together like a glove. How do you explain that? Well, lastly in this category, let's think about the Bible's fulfilled prophecy. Let's just take those prophecies that have to do with Jesus. Scholars say that Jesus fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament prophecies. Well, his enemies might say, well, he just rigged things. He did things so prophecy would be fulfilled. Well, let's think about the logic behind that. First, before he was even alive, he arranged the place of his birth. Now, could you have done that? Could you have arranged where you were going to be born before you were born? Then he managed for Isaiah to say things about him 700 years before he was born. Did you write your own personal biography before you were born? Then he, had, uh, he arranged all the details of his crucifixion on a cross. Psalm 22, for instance, contains 33 direct prophecies that were fulfilled at Calvary, and yet it was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Now what's even more intriguing, when David wrote Psalm 22, the form of capital punishment among the Jews was not crucifixion. It was what? It was stoning. It was stoning. The Romans had not even come into power and crucifixion was a Roman form of execution. And yet it wasn't even known 
at the time of Psalm 22. The Bible said 700 years ahead of time that Jesus would be crucified between two thieves. Isaiah 59, 9-12. That Judas would betray him for exactly 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah eleven twelve. And folks, consider this. Many of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled were not fulfilled by his friends, but by his enemies. By his enemies who had the most to lose by those events being fulfilled that way. Now what did the Lord Jesus believe about the Bible? For Jesus, what, he was satisfied with what the scriptures said. God had said. What the scriptures had said, God had said. Never one time did Jesus question the reliability of the scripture. He authenticated the strict, literal, historical accuracy of the Old Testament, including those narratives most oftentimes attacked by critics, like the creation account, the flood, Jonah, Daniel, and so forth and so on. And time and time again, Jesus said, God's word cannot be broken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or not one tittle of my word will pass away. Though all the heavens pass away, not one jot or tittle. A jot and a tittle in the Hebrew language are the smallest little marks equivalent to our comma and our apostrophe. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass away, though the world will pass away. The Bible is a treasure book. It's inspired. Now, folks, where did Timothy hear the gospel? From Paul. How did Paul hear it? From Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. Paul passed it on to Timothy what God had revealed to him. And Timothy was to retain this and hold on to it. Again he says here follow the pattern of the sound words. Now the word that he uses here is interesting. It was used of a form, a sketch, or a mold that an artist would use. It'd be like ladies, or men I suppose if you sew. I don't know too many men who sew. But ladies who sew, who purchase a pattern to go by. Same word that's used here. When he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. It's not our job to deviate from the standard. It's our job simply to teach the faith that has been given to us. 
Amen? The doctrines that we find in the Word of God. What's doctrine? It's, it's just the primary key elements of our faith. Principles of our faith. Like the death and burial and resurrection for Je- uh, of Jesus Christ, for instance. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy that Timothy needed to hold on to. And he says, hold on to it in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, look at those words again, sound words in verse 13. The Greek here for sound literally means uh, healthy. We get our word hygiene from this word here. Good hygiene promotes good health. Now, fortunately, there's an emphasis in our culture on good hygiene. I'm glad of that, aren't you? I'll never forget my ethics professor in seminary, Dr. Ebby Smith. He was a missionary at one time to a certain part of Indonesia that didn't have some of these regulations. And he said he was out walking one day and he watched this boy riding along on his bicycle with his milk bottles in his basket. And, and the boy wrecked his bicycle and turned that basket over and a lot of the milk bottles spilled out. And that little boy, quickly he ran around, grabbed up those milk bottles, turned them up as quickly as he could. And uh, as he was putting them back in his basket, some of the bottles of the milk had, had poured out. So the milk volume was lower. And Abby said that little boy, he watched him. He, he kind of looked like this. And he walked over to the edge of the road where the latrine was. And he scooped those bottles down in the latrine and he filled them up back to the level where they should be. He put them back in his basket and he jumped on his bicycle seat and he pedaled off. Ebby said, you know what, in many ways our government sure is oppressive He said, but you know what, when it comes to some things I sure am glad we have some of the laws and rules and regulations that we do have Like in regards to cleanliness and hygiene Well, that's the word here for sound words, healthy words Words that produce good spiritual hygiene. Good doctrine produces what? Spiritual health. He says we hold on to the pattern in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That is, we are to believe, we are to be convinced that it's true. We can be assured that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's true. Now folks, I like what Dr. Billy Graham said at the beginning of his ministry. Dr. Billy Graham said, you know what? There are some portions of the Bible that are above my pay grade. I I don't understand them. Billy Graham said, some of my professors tell me I need to doubt it. But Billy Graham said, you know what? I made a deal with God one day. I I got along with God and he said, God, there's some things to your word I just simply don't understand. But God, I'm going to trust it as your word. And Lord, I believe that over time and ultimately in eternity before the judgment seat of Christ, everything you say in your word will be fully vindicated. And so I'm going to preach it just like it's written. That's good advice sitting at church. 
That's good advice. Because again, whether scientifically, historically, prophetically, all the attacks against the Bible, all the attacks against the Bible, given enough time, given enough research, given new discoveries, archaeological discoveries, manuscript discoveries, given enough time, all the questions and doubts men have had have eventually been answered. And so that gives me great confidence. Any lingering doubts that anybody has, given enough time, those will eventually be answered. We need to preserve what we have. He said, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now look at what he goes on to say secondly in verse 14 when he tells him to protect the gospel. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I want you to take your pen out and circle that word guard. Okay? Circle that word guard. And then I want you to turn over to the book of Jude. Jude and verse 3. Look at what Jude says in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. Notice what he goes on to say there in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Back to what he said. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard. Guard that faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Now folks, what's, what's the idea come, that comes to your mind when you hear that word guard? What's it imply? What's it, what's it imply might happen? Somebody what? Somebody's going to come in and attack it. Exactly. Again, that's what Satan did beginning back in Genesis 3. And as Jude wrote, he said that's exactly what's going on. We need to contend for the faith earnestly delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unaware. They've snuck in. They've slithered in. Men who ultimately deny the grace of God, they pervert the gospel of grace, and they deny our only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Men whose destruction was marked out before time. And by the way, here in... uh, 
here in 2 Timothy, Paul mentions some of those, right? Look at verse 15. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus did well. You read on in uh, uh, later on in chapter 2, uh, down in verse 17 says, Their talk will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. The church in her 2,000 year plus history has had to deal with people attacking the gospel and attacking the word of God. And what's Paul saying to Timothy? Timothy, it's going to be no different in your age. It's going to be no different at all. In fact, he says in 2 Timothy 3, as the world goes on and gets in the end times, it's going to be dangerous times, perilous times. Men are going to be lovers of self, just all kinds of stuff. They're going to hate the truth and they're going to turn away from the truth and turn to myths and fables and deny God. Church, what he's telling us here is we've got to be prepared To guard the gospel. To protect it. It is a stewardship that has been given to us. A stewardship. And he points out here that we are to guard it by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. In other words, God is going to help us in this work. Now, what's the gospel that we need to guard? It's exactly what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 15? He said in 1 Corinthians 15, This is the gospel that I preached to you. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what were those at Corinth doing? Some there were denying the resurrection. So again, he's telling Timothy, he's telling telling all of us through the power of his spirit down through the ages that we've got to not only preserve the gospel, we've got to protect it. Because from time to time, it is going to be subject to attack. Well, lastly, what are we to do in this stewardship of the the word? We're to preserve it. We're to protect it. What else are we to do? Propagate it. Look at chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The image here 
is of a faithful steward or teacher. Timothy was taught by Paul. Now what's Timothy to do? Timothy is supposed to identify reliable men and he is to instill the message in those reliable men. Now circle that word reliable or faithful in verse 2. He says, entrust to faithful men or reliable men who will be able to teach others also. You see the chain here? Paul taught Timothy. Timothy's to teach reliable men. These reliable men are to do what? They are to teach other reliable men. We're to pass it on. God's not just simply interested in PhDs or eloquent men. God is after reliable men. Reliable men who will be honoring to the message, who will preserve it, protect it, and then men who will pass it on to others as well. There's the unmistakable principle in the Word of God that we are to reproduce ourselves spiritually. We are to reproduce ourselves spiritually. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Now let's go back a minute. I want you to see something here. I want you to see this this wonderful chain. Go, Go back to verse 12 again. What did Paul say he had done in verse 12 of chapter 1? What what had he entrusted to the Lord? What had he entrusted to the Lord? He had entrusted his salvation and ministry to the Lord, right? Look at verse 14. What has God entrusted to us? The gospel. Now in chapter 2, what are we to do? We're to entrust it to others. Isn't that a wonderful trio there? Paul says, I've entrusted my soul's keeping to God. Timothy, he has entrusted the gospel to us. Now we are to entrust it to others. All these verses tie together with that thought of entrust. Entrust. We're to propagate the gospel. We're to entrust it to others. Now folks, after the introductory lesson last week, just talking about stewardship in general. As I mentioned last week, we're going to talk about the stewardship of our time, our resources, the stewardship of our lives, our work, our spiritual gift. But I wanted to begin tonight with a stewardship that nine times out of ten we don't even think of. But it's the most important 
stewardship that we have. We have a stewardship of the word. As the church of Jesus Christ. We have a treasure book. That has been handed down to us. God's inspired word. Profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. And you talk to people about stewardship and immediately they start talking about their, they start thinking about their pocketbook or other things like that. And again, we're going to get to all that. But the first stewardship you and I need to reckon with And come to terms with that we have as the church. Is the gospel. There is no greater stewardship we have. Than that right there. That's the basis. That's the foundation of our ministry. It's the foundation of everything that we do. You compromise this and everything collapses. I want you to remember this week. You are a steward of the word. And I am a steward of the word. Let's close in prayer. Father, write it upon our hearts that we need to follow the pattern of sound words. That we need to guard the good deposit entrusted to us. And we need to entrust it to other faithful men who in turn will entrust it to others. Lord, it's a stewardship we don't often think of. But it ought to be the very first thing that we think of when we think of stewardship. Lord, we see many in the world today that mock your word, that cast dispersion upon it. They laugh at it. They ridicule Christians for believing the Bible. And yet, Lord, we know that that is a very uninformed Skepticism that they possess. Because time and time again throughout the history of the church. As skeptics have attacked it and ridiculed it. It has always stood up to those attacks. Always stood up to the accusations. Always stood up to the ridicule. Lord, in great confidence, help us each day to open our Bibles, to soak it in, to teach it to others, to be witnesses of the gospel, and to look at it, God, as a sacred trust, a stewardship. 
And I pray that this is an area by which when we stand before Christ one day, we will hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.